um, in my current situation. Lord, His will be done. Take your Bible, open it up to Luke 19 this morning. Luke 19. It's been a few weeks, but um, when I've been preaching, we've been walking through the last quarter of this gospel. And today we arrive at a seminal event in the life and ministry of Jesus our Messiah. And we're going to take a look at that. Uh, Luke 19. The, the triumphal entry is where we are. And as has been mentioned already this morning, it's commonly called Palm Sunday uh, on our current Christian calendar, but as we're going to see this morning, at least I hope, it's not exactly that, and in fact it's a lot more than that. Uh, But let's remember where we are first, it has been a little while, so when we're in Luke 19 and going back to Luke 18, Jesus is in his final approach to the city of Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem he is going to be crucified, and he knows this. So in Luke 18 and 19, he's on the road there. We saw him uh, several weeks ago now near Jericho heal two blind men, one of whom was named Bartimaeus. And, and a lot of people saw this because Jesus isn't the only one going up to Jerusalem. Uh, it is the Passover approaching. So you have a mass of people really going toward Jerusalem at this time. So there are a lot of people seeing and hearing Jesus during these final days of his earthly ministry. He goes to the home of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs up in the sycamore tree trying to see the Lord, but really it's the Lord seeking him. He goes into Zacchaeus' house. He, he brings salvation to the house of sinners. And that's in Luke 19, the first part of the chapter. Then what we saw last time we were in Luke 19 together was an interesting parable in verses 11 to 27. And it's a very important parable because the people were supposing that the... Amen. The people were supposing that the king... That's okay. Hey, I used to have my daughters climb up in the pulpit with me when I was preaching and and things like that. So it's all good. The people were supposing that the kingdom of God was coming. that, That the kingdom of God was really at hand. Jesus spoke about a nobleman, if you recall that parable... A nobleman who left to go to a distant country to receive a kingdom, and then he was going to return. And he entrusted his slaves to manage his kingdom while he was gone. Do business with this until I return, until I come back, he said. But if you also recall, there were citizens of the kingdom who complained that they did not want this man to reign over us. And... He does receive the kingdom. He does come back. He judges the stewards based on their faithfulness or their lack thereof. He says, To everyone who is given, uh, more, to to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. He says that about those those servants. And then about the, the, the citizens, he says, These enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Bring them here and slay them in my presence. And I I just bring all that back up again because that's the last thing we read before what we're about to read. And one thing definitely has to do with the other. So let's look at Luke 19. And I'm going to read verses 28 to 44. And then we're going to get into it. It says this. It says, After he had said these things, and these things are that parable, 
He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on, which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it so those who were sent away those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the colt its owners said to them why are you untying the colt they said the lord has need of it they brought it to jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put jesus on it as he was going they were spreading their coats on the road As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's just pray real quick. Father, we just ask now that you would use your word to move among us this morning. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit might use your word to convict us of our sins, to to teach us more about you, to conform us more to the image of your Son, Jesus. And it is in His name we ask this. Amen. Amen. What we've read is is commonly known as the triumphal entry. Some call it the the coronation of a king, and and I can see that. Uh, We don't have kings and queens in America. Um, I I did not watch the latest royal wedding. I did not watch the one before that. I did not much care either. I know a lot of people do. Uh, That's just not me. And We haven't had the coronation of a British monarch, at least, in over 65 years. Um, And... I'm sure that whenever that happens again, and it'll probably be in the next few years, because I believe Queen Elizabeth is in her her mid-90s at this point, but uh, it's going to be extraordinary, and and I'm sure there'll be a lot of pomp and circumstance. We don't really get that here. The closest thing we get to that is a presidential inauguration, and we get that, and we can count on that. Every four years, we can count on that. The the, the peaceful transfer of, of executive power from one individual to another, sometimes from one party to another. And when you think about it, it, it really is a remarkable thing that that happens and that so far it's happened peaceably every single time. Uh, especially when you consider the amount of, of, of disdain that, that, that people have for one another. Although I, I'm reading through presidential biographies right now and, and the current political climate is really nothing new. It's always been this way. Um, but, but a presidential inauguration, the coronation of a king or queen, these are events which merit the great attention they get. These are events which merit a, a 
taking great lengths to celebrate them, humanly speaking. And all of it stands really in stark contrast to what we have just read in Luke 19. It, what we've read, from a human perspective, lacks any semblance of the pomp and circumstance we would expect for the coronation of a king, much less the king of kings. The passage begins, after he had said these things, Luke says that as a reminder don't forget what I've just read. Don't, don't, don't forget what I've just written, what you've just read. It's a reminder that, that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem isn't isolated from what has come before, and we know it certainly isn't isolated from what's going to come after it. There is, again, there is a substantial crowd around Jesus because Passover is near. And, and just as a reminder of what Passover is, it is the annual feast that commemorates the Exodus. It is the annual feast established in Exodus chapter 12, which God gave to Israel to to mark the the taking of the firstborn of Egypt and the saving of Israel before they went to cross the Red Sea. And they would celebrate this every year. It was the biggest feast of the year, uh, probably. I mean, the only thing that really would compare would be the Day of Atonement and the things surrounding that. But... It, it was the biggest event in Israel's history and the biggest feast that they would celebrate. And so you've got all these people going up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem. And, and they were going there to remember and to worship and to celebrate and to sacrifice. And, and having seen what Jesus had been doing, had been hearing, have, ha, having hearing Him and, and, and seen the miracles, and, and, and He's brought salvation to Zacchaeus and and he's raised Lazarus. People are hearing about that. That just ha- that had just happened, just recently. The raising of Lazarus. The people are in a state of expectation. Uh, so as as they are ascending this thirty five hundred foot road up to Jerusalem, there is this increasing fervor about who this man is and what is he going to do when he gets there. So so they know he's powerful, and what that what's happening is they are hoping that He is going to exercise the power they've heard about and that many of them have seen, that He's going to exercise this power in Jerusalem to finally deliver Israel from their enemies. And what that means is they were going to reestablish the kingdom. Jesus is going to be the king. And the Roman Empire will be bothering Israel no more. And the Messiah is going to bring Israel back to the heights it reached under David and Solomon a thousand years ago. What they did not understand, what they would not understand though, is that Jesus wasn't walking toward a throne. Jesus was walking toward His death. Jesus wasn't ascending to Jerusalem to have a crown of jewels placed upon His head, but a crown of thorns. Jesus would not be going up to bring Israel back to the glory days. He would be hoisted up on a cross to become sin and to bear the wrath of His Father against sin. You see, Jesus here is the nobleman that will be going away to receive a kingdom and then return. Meanwhile, there were most definitely those in Israel who did not want Him to reign over them. The the chief priests and the scribes. We read about this in Matthew 26. They got together later during that week and decided that they are going to seize Jesus by stealth and kill Him 
But they were going to wait until after the Passover, not during the Passover, because they did not want a riot to break out among these people that were following Jesus into the city. So they had their plans. But those were the plans of men, right? And and many plans are in a man's heart, Proverbs 19.21 says, but the counsel of Yahweh is what stands. And this was all God's plan. It was all ordained by God before the foundation of the world, and it was going to happen just as He knew it was going to happen, just as He had decided it was going to happen, exactly when it was going to happen. You see, the prophets had written about this. that They'd actually written about the time when it would happen. Gabriel, we think about Gabriel, we think about Gabriel coming to Mary, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying, you are going to bear a son, and he will be called Son of the Most High. But... 500 or so years before this, Gabriel had appeared to the prophet Daniel. And Daniel was in Babylon. He, the, they were in exile. Judah had been exiled to Babylon. And in Daniel 9, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds here because I could spend some significant time on this, but the angel tells Daniel that from the decree to rebuild the temple, there are going to be 483 years, 483 Jewish years of 360 days until Messiah the Prince. And there's more to that prophecy. But it just so works out that 483 years from that decree ends on the 10th of the month of Nisan in the year A.D. 30. And and the reason that's important is because that's when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. Jesus has, at times during His ministry told people not to publicly talk about Him being the Messiah. You know, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a few verses later, he says, don't tell people I'm the Messiah. In in John 6, He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. And then He perceives that they're going to come and take Him and make Him king by force. And so He withdraws. So there are times during Jesus' ministry where people are starting to see just who this guy is. And he's like, it's not time yet. But now, even though his hour had not come then, Passover is here. The expectation is there. It is time. And so, with perhaps 100,000 people lining the streets of Jerusalem as he's entering in, maybe a million to two million people in the city itself for Passover, in, in chapter 19, verse 29, we first see here a show of sovereignty. A show of sovereignty. You see, on, on, the, on the Saturday before Passover, that's when Jesus arrives in Bethany. The next day, Sunday, Jesus dines in the home of a man named Simon, a leper. And we read about that also in Matthew 26. But it's also that day that John writes in John 12, a large crowd of the Jews then learned He was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Again, remember, Lazarus had just been raised. Okay, John 11. It's the day after that. It's Monday, not Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem. And, and you guys might be scratching your heads there and I know the tradition is that it was Sunday, Palm Sunday after all. But, but as I understand Scripture, it was Monday. And we, we have to be governed by Scripture, not simply by tradition, okay? 
And, and Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Monday solves some problems that have puzzled biblical scholars for centuries. Because if Jesus entered the city on Sunday, it means we don't have any record of him doing anything on Wednesday of that week. And I'm not going to go through all the all the, the stuff there, but, but it, it's, it's odd that the Bible would omit a day out of that week given all it says about what's going on that week. So it's worth noting also that Scripture nowhere says it was the first day of the week. That would be Sunday that He came into Jerusalem. As I understand Scripture, understanding Jesus to come in on Monday makes more sense, but there's a better reason to understand it as Monday. And it goes back to Exodus 12 and the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, God tells Moses and, and through Moses all of Israel that you're going to celebrate this Passover. And on the tenth day of the month, you're going to choose the lamb, the unblemished lamb. You're going to choose that lamb. And then on the fourteenth day of the month, you're going to sacrifice that lamb. So the lamb was to be chosen on the tenth. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on the tenth of Nisan, A.D. 30. As the people are choosing the lambs, they are going to sacrifice that Friday, the 14th of Nisan. So what this is, is it's, it's the Passover, but it's God's chosen lamb. It's God's, God doing the choosing here, and He is choosing His own Son Jesus to be the one, Paul says, Christ our Passover, our, our, our sacrifice. All of this is divinely decreed. All of this is being carried out by God, showing His sovereignty over time, over people, over events. But there's even more that shows His sovereignty here. Because Jesus isn't just a man, is He? Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the Son of God with all the power of God residing in Him bodily. That's Colossians 2.9. All the fullness of deity dwells in Him. And he sends two disciples into the village, probably Bethphage, to find a colt. Matthew adds that uh, they would find a donkey and a colt. A colt and his mother. And the colt, no one would have ever ridden on it. And, and, and the details make clear Jesus' omniscience here. His all-knowingness as God. He's telling them exactly what they will find exactly how they are to respond, exactly how people will respond to them. Why are you untying the colt? The Lord has need of it. Exactly what to say. Jesus knows it all. Nothing's taking Him by surprise here. He is, you know, they're not stealing the colt. Uh, Mark 11, we see that they, they did give them permission to take the colt. They probably considered it an honor for Jesus to use their colt for any reason. So, the disciples brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt. The, the colt. Then they put Jesus on it. And, and what's the significance of this? Well, it could just be that, that he's riding the colt like, like David rode the mule. Solomon was put on David's mule when he went into the city for his coronation in 1 Kings chapter 1. But, but there's more going on here. And to, do, to see that, I want you to stay in Luke 9... But flip left to Zechariah chapter 9. I'll give you a second to get there. Zechariah 9, 
It's uh, the third to last, no, second to last book of the Old Testament. Right? I think I got that right. And in Zechariah 9, the burden of the word of Yahweh comes, and it comes against this, this, these nations that surround Israel. But I want you to see verse 9. Look at verse 9. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Israel. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, to Jerusalem. He is just and endowed with salvation. This is not just any king, is it? But furthermore, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this was written several hundred years before, probably in about 518 B.C. So God sovereignly gave His Word to the prophet who wrote it down for the Son of God to fulfill some 548 years later. Jesus would ride on a donkey's colt into the city, not in a presidential motorcade, not in a carriage filled with all all kinds of decoration, not bound for a resplendent palace. Jesus came in on a colt. It was a a humble entrance for a, a humble animal anticipating a humble death to come. But as verse 35 comes to a close, the humble entrance into Jerusalem shows God's sovereignty. God declares these events well in advance. Jesus is the God-man who who tells his his disciples exactly what they'll find. There's more going on here than a man going into Jerusalem. This is the God-King. So we see a show of sovereignty. The next thing we see is a recognition of regality. Look again at verses 36 to 38. Now, uh, let me turn the page. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember, large crowd here. Not, not only all of the people who'd been accumulating around Jesus from Jericho onward, but people in Bethany and Bethphage are joining in. People already in Jerusalem are hearing Jesus, the, the miracle worker, Jesus the Nazarene is, is approaching. So they're going to join in. And they're very well, as I read it, maybe 100,000 people lining the streets for this scene. So, so think about that. Add that to the picture in your, your mind's eye of these people spreading their coats on the road. Think about the mass of coats that would have been on the road as Jesus approached, which was custom for a king, especially a new king. It was an expression of submission. It was an expression of, of willingly placing oneself under the authority of the king. And before Jesus had said, don't tell people who I am. But, but he doesn't do that here, does he? He accepts this act. He doesn't rebuke them for this. He, he accepts their adoration. He accepts their praise. 
He accepts their worship because it's appropriate. It's proper. It is right to worship Jesus. He is the one who is worthy of this. And the crowd's excitement only increases as they descend the Mount of Olives and they begin to draw closer to the city. And Luke records them saying, Blessed is the King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And what that is, it's a quotation and a fulfillment of Psalm 118.26 where it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's a very important fulfilling there because the, the, that psalm, Psalm 118, is the last of what are called the Hallels. The reason that's significant is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are known as the Hallels. And the Jews, as they would ascend the hill to go into Jerusalem, and they would do this every year, in fact they would do it more than once a year for, for all the different feasts, they would sing the Hallels. This is what they would customarily, traditionally sing. Psalms 113 to 118. And they would do this especially in anticipating the Passover. And they're doing it now, except this time they're singing it in reference to this one on this colt. They're singing this about Jesus as if to say, He is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. He is the one who has come in the name of Yahweh. It's, it's clear they meant Jesus because Matthew also reports them saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. That is, save now. That's what Hosanna means. Save now, Son of David. Save now, Messiah. Save now, God's anointed. Save now, God's King. Save now, Savior of Israel. Save now, the one who is highest. They also cut palm branches and threw them in the road to symbolize joy, victory, celebration. The Jews had done that before. During the time between the Old and New Testaments, they they had cut palm branches and put them in the road to celebrate taking Jerusalem back from the Assyrians. Not from the Assyrians, from the Syrians. That happens between the Old and New Testaments. But now, they're pleading for salvation. Save now. But what became clear, sadly is that they were not pleading for salvation from their sins. The vast majority of Jews weren't thinking about that. They wanted a political salvation. A political deliverance. Their joy was because they thought that they were going to get deliverance from enemies, not unlike the temporary feeling people sometimes get when their candidate wins the presidency. Okay? They wanted political deliverance from the Roman Empire. They wanted the kingdom back. They shouted peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But what they did not comprehend nor accept is that that peace first had to be bought with the blood of the one whose praises they were singing. They didn't understand that. They didn't get that. But as we talked about during the the Sunday school hour, they should have. Zechariah 12, verse 10. God says that Israel, and it's a future generation of Israel now, they will look on Me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son 
and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's when they, they will then make the confession of, of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, they'll say this. They don't believe this about Messiah today, but, but one day they will see that this applies to Jesus. And they will say, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. That's what a future generation of Israel will say about Jesus. They'll say, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our, for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. They will say, Israel will say that someday. See, the crowd recognized the regality, the kingliness, the kingship of Jesus as He ascended the hill to Jerusalem, but He was not the kind of king they wanted. And because of that, the third thing we see, we see a show of sovereignty, a recognition of regality, and now a pronouncement of punishment. A pronouncement of punishment. You see, not everyone celebrated. Not everyone was joyful. Verse 39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, they found it distasteful. They found it even blasphemous that someone would say these things about Jesus. But the Pharisees knew they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't stop the masses from doing this. So they appealed to Jesus, Will you please stop these people from doing this? Jesus sees right through the Pharisees, though, just as He sees through you this morning. And He says, I tell you, if these stones become silent, if the, I mean, He says, if these become silent, these people, the stones will cry out. If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Jesus was not saying this happily. A lot of times, the, the, the passage, that passage about the stones crying out, is is referenced in, in like praise and worship songs to think about actual creation, singing the praises of God. That's not what's being said here. Even my favorite band of all time released a, a, a praise album in 1989 called Petra Praise. The st- the rock cries out, and it's about it's a reference to that verse. But uh, they they misunderstand the passage. Okay. While those singing His praises were excited and filled with joy, Jesus, He's coming into Jerusalem on that colt with great sadness. He says, I tell you, and whenever He says something like that, what follows is very serious. Like whenever He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, you better pay attention. And here, you better pay attention. If these become silent, the stones will cry out. He is not talking about something that will hypothetically happen if everyone just stops praising Him. That's not what he's saying here. He's he's not imagining actual rocks voicing amazing grace or whatever songs. Okay? He is not talking about something hypothetical that might happen. He is speaking with great sadness about something that was going to happen. Something that would happen. You see, after this, 
there would be no more shouts of praise from crowds for Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, the next time we see crowds shouting anything about Jesus, it's on Friday. And what are those words? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. What's Jesus saying really? If these people become silent, and they will, then the stones will cry out. The word for cry means to scream. The stones were were not going to break forth in songs of praise, but they would be broken. Broken in such a way as to affirm the wickedness of Israel. In Habakkuk 2, 11 and 12, it says, Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the raptor will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. So while the leaders of Israel are plotting violence against the Lord's anointed to build themselves up and to protect their own power, Jesus is saying, judgment is coming. Luke says when Jesus approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it. That word for wept in the Greek is the strongest possible word He could use there. Jesus wasn't getting misty here, guys and gals. Jesus wasn't sniffling. Okay? That word for wept conveys a sobbing and agony. And you know, a lot of times we don't... We, it, we, we think about Jesus wept. We think about Lazarus. and He is sobbing in agony over what he sees in Jerusalem as he enters in victoriously. Okay? He's sobbing over the rejection of Israel. Over their hypocrisy. Over their shallow religiosity. He's sobbing over their superficiality over the, 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 the surface level superficiality of their worship. I imagine he could do the same thing today as he looked upon the American church. He sobbed with agony because he knew the wrath of God was coming. If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, the Jews should have known the things which make for peace. What are the things which make for peace? Repentance makes for peace. Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification by faith gives us peace. Faith. They did not understand, they did not accept that they needed to trust in Jesus Himself for salvation. They did not accept Jesus was the Son of God. They did not accept Jesus was God in flesh. They did not accept Him as Lord. They did not accept Him as King. So since they closed their hearts toward Him, God was going to harden their hearts as He did Pharaoh's before. And to this day, Israel does not worship Jesus as their Messiah. There will come a day when when a third of them will, but not until that day that Zechariah spoke of that I, I read earlier. Not until they look upon Him whom they have pierced. But first, Jesus says this in verses 43-44, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And Jesus is talking here about a judgment that came upon Israel four decades later. Forty years after this, the Roman Empire under Titus Vespasian came into Israel to suppress a Jewish revolt that had begun about four years earlier. And they decimated Israel. They decimated Jerusalem. Rome was God's hammer. And He nailed Israel through the Roman Empire. And Jesus knew about it ahead of time because He is God. And how they would surround the Jews. And you can look at history and see how they did this. There are many historical references to this. They hemmed them in. When you hear about the the fortress at Masada, that's what that's talking about. And they even destroyed the temple, not leaving one stone upon another. Those are the stones that cried out in judgment. Not in praise, but in judgment. In judgment of those who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They refused to recognize the time of their visitation. That word visitation, by the way, harkens back to Luke 1. And the angel visiting Mary saying, He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. He will have the throne of David. He will rule over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. Even Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, would refer to to God visiting them. And in Luke 1.78, the tender mercy of God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. And now it had. Jesus had come. He had brought salvation. But He's also bringing judgment. The Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world would have to die on the same day as all the other lambs slain that Passover. Christ, our Passover, was slain so that death could not have victory over those covered by the blood of the Lamb. And the question as we begin to to draw to a close this morning is the time of your visitation is upon you whether you realize it or not. Has the Son risen in your heart? Or will you be crushed by the judgment? If you stand, beloved, this morning on the side of salvation, it means that you have humbly come to the King. It means that you have come to Him who humbly entered Jerusalem on a donkey's full. It means that you have repented of your your status as a sinner and, and repented of the very fact that you sin. It means that you have, you've cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you and that you have entrusted everything you are, everything you have, everything you want to be, everything you, you ever will be to Jesus Christ who entered Jerusalem so that He could go to the cross and be the, the sacrifice for sinners. And He was raised on the third day so that all those who believe in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation for those who believe. Judgment for those who do not truly entrust themselves to God's King.
Have you done that? Will you do that? Beloved, this morning recognize the time of your visitation. You have heard the Word of God this morning. You have heard the Gospel. What are you going to do with that information? Will you continue to push Jesus off to the side as the crowd would end up doing, as the Pharisees were doing? Or will you be His disciple? Because the noble man will return with his kingdom. And by then it will be too late. He won't come on a colt that time. He'll come on a white horse. And he'll come to reign and to judge. And the question is, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, but so is judgment. The stones cried out. Are you trusting in the one who the Bible calls the chief cornerstone? Let's pray. Father, as you sent your son into the world, a king to become like a slave so that slaves could reign with you forever. I pray, Father, that we would be transformed this morning. Father, I thank you that you have seen fit to send Jesus into the world to save sinners. I am a sinner, Father. We are all sinners. And I pray that if there's anyone here who is still on the side of judgment, who maybe is, is maybe they've never trusted in you, maybe they've never trusted in your Son, maybe they, maybe they profess it, but maybe, Lord, deep down it's just superficial. It's just superficial. Lord, I pray you will save them before the stones cry out on their life. And Father, for those of us who are believers, those of us who, are, who, have, who have peace with you by faith, I pray, Father, that you renew our zeal to sing and proclaim the praises of your King. Lord, may we not be ashamed to sing Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And may we, Lord, live our lives reflecting the fact that Jesus is the King. And He's coming back. May you work among us as Father as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The song's going to play. You take this time to respond as the Lord draws you. Rather it be unto salvation, rather it be unto repentance. If you need to commit to Him this morning, I pray you will do that. To God be the glory.